I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. So we find ourselves uh, in the spooky season currently, 23rd of October, and uh, Halloween just next week. And Halloween, when I was a kid, was always one of my favorite holidays. You know, I grew up on scary stories and ghosts and goblins and things like that, and so I always enjoyed Halloween and going around the neighborhood and getting candy and whatnot. And around this time of year, it's also quite common for a lot of horror movies and TV shows and other uh, kinds of entertainment to come out that want to excite us and make us think about the mysterious and, and the ominous. And this month, uh, Netflix released a show called uh, The Midnight Club, which I was actually surprised to see uh, being adapted. It's a work of uh, Steve, uh, not Stephen King, uh, Christopher Pike, originally. And I knew that because when I was very young, around fourth grade or so, so I don't know, what does that make me, nine, ten years old? I read The Midnight, well, I read Christopher Pike's books. I don't think I read The Midnight Club just yet. But I read a lot of his books, which are being adapted into this show, The Midnight Club. And when I did read The Midnight Club, by the time I was, I think, maybe 14, I thought I was very mature and very cool for reading this particular book because the book itself has to do with uh, a group of teens living in a hospice who are all terminally ill, about to die. And the book itself actually isn't all that spooky, and the name derives around the club that they form, the Midnight Club, where these termina terminally ill young people gather around to share stories, and even the stories themselves aren't quite spooky. The spookiness that seems to be there is just the specter of death itself hovering over these, these young people as they contemplate the, the years they feel that are stolen from them, as they realize that death is maybe just a few weeks, maybe a couple months, maybe a year away. And so when I read this at a very young age, I felt very mature for even contemplating these issues and thinking about these issues. And so I was very excited to, to be thinking about this and feel like an adult. To read a book written uh, for young adults that didn't feel as if the, the young adults in question were being spoken down to, but rather being perhaps maybe spoken up to, treated as adults themselves, because we all have to contemplate our mortality at one point or another. And so, seeing that this show was adapted, I thought, wow, look at this. Christopher Pike finally getting some attention after all these years. Well, most of his books having been published in the, the 1990s. But it made me think about the kind of person I was when I was young, and the kind of entertainment I would seek out. And it was a lot of stuff by Christopher Pike, and a lot of other authors, but specifically because of someone like Christopher Pike, who seemed to write in any particular genre. You know, there'd be sci-fi, there'd be horror, there'd be uh, fantasy, and, but a lot of elements of spirituality all throughout. And it definitely piqued my, my interest. And I've talked uh, before about how as I 
got older, I, I began to put a lot of those books aside and a lot of those forms of, of entertainment aside. I stopped reading so much fantasy and sci-fi and horror and mystery and things like that and uh, began to read other kinds of books if I was going to read them a, a, at all. You know, I, I have a scholarly mind, so I tended to start reading a lot of books on, on philosophy and religion, spirituality. These days I read a lot of stuff on the Dhamma. But I wonder why there was that, that change in me. Uh, because there seems to be that change in a lot of people. As they, they grow older and, and, and mature, they, they set aside what some might call childish things. You know, the, the fantasy and the, the flights of, of imagination, um, sci-fi, all those things sometimes seem like children's things, although less so now. They seem to be quite popular again amongst the uh, adults of today. But there is that sense that a lot of people talk about how now that they're adults in the, in the real world, they don't have a lot of time for such things. And I think that for myself too, I viewed myself as wanting to step into the real world and not want to be caught up in, in fantasy and caught up in, in mystery and, and caught up in dreams. I wanted to be you know, involved in some real stuff. I wanted to not so much be entertained or uh, perhaps uh, escape to somewhere else, but I wanted to be inspired. And so these days, when I, when I do choose to read, a lot of the time it's, it's something Dharma-related. And for me, that feels very much like being part of the real world. And that doesn't mean that for me, as someone who wants to participate in the real world and real issues, there are not aspects of what might what others might call fantasy or or delusion or or strange ideas, because by reading the Dhamma, I'm reading stuff on the concepts of like rebirth and heaven and hell realms and devas and spirits and hungry ghosts and demons, nagas, things like that. So for some people, that seems very fanciful all on its own. But the issues are quite different. For myself, when I see myself as this young person who was looking to escape and be entertained, I saw someone that wanted transformation, but all the transformation was on the outside. I wanted to have those magic powers that I saw these people wield and shape their worlds, casting spells, incantations, performing alchemy and the like. And as I've gotten older, I've seen that the most powerful transformations are the ones that are internal, the ones that happen inside. And so part of my seeking out inspiration has been looking at how people go about doing that themselves, how they transform themselves inside, which is precisely the, the realm of the Dhamma, seeking to transform ourselves, cultivate ourselves, train ourselves within. And that for me is all part of the real world. And I keep using this particular phrase because I read something recently that uh, surprised me because it was uh, a respected uh, teacher and scholar of, of Buddhism that was talking about the real world versus the world that we find in the, in the discourses versus the world that we find in the Buddhist canon. Specifically saying that maybe sometimes the rules don't apply because we live in the real world. Specifically, this person was trying to advocate that sometimes killing might be appropriate. 
which for those of us who've studied the polycanon know that that couldn't possibly be something that would be advocated and encouraged by the Buddha or any of his disciples. So it was strange to see someone who is in this position, a position of authority, supposing that the way the path is, is presented to us in the canon is something uh, fanciful, larger than life, perhaps tall tales. And those of us in the real world couldn't possibly cultivate or develop in the way that we see there. And in my experience, and in the experience of the teachers I trust, that is not the case. That when I look at the Pali Canon, when I look at the suttas, when I look at the discourses, I see something absolutely real and having absolute real impact on the world around us, not just within, but without ripple effects that we can see. So in our modern time, we have many different Buddhist traditions. And I spoke not too long ago about how there can be a lot of bickering amongst the different uh, traditions and tribes and schools as they all do, you know, argue over which is the, the, the true Dharma or the true Dhamma. So it might be best to look at what we might call boilerplate Buddhism, the aspect of Buddhism that most of us can agree on. And I think that we can really look at the Four Noble Truths as an example of that. You know, the truths are not just statement in themselves, but they also have a, a duty or a task assigned with them. We can look at the Four Noble Truths as the, the statement that, that there is stress, but with that there is a duty, a task, to comprehend stress. There is a statement that stress or suffering has causes, and with that, there can be the duty, the, the task that we have as Buddhists to abandon the causes of stress. We can see and make this statement to ourselves that stress has an end, a cessation. And we can also recognize that there's a task involved, a duty involved. We can see that stress, with its elimination, can be realized. And then, with the fourth truth, we can see that there is a path to that cessation. And it has to be cultivated. It has to be developed. It requires real energy and commitment. The path is one of those things, too, that we can agree across all of what we might say is pan-Buddhism. That there are eight path factors. That there is right view, right resolve, right speech, right action right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And all of these path factors lead us in a particular direction, a direction towards disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, release. So we can see that really when we're talking about this path, this path is sending us in the direction of purification, we might say, taking these defilements that we have in the mind and shrinking them down, breaking them up, turning them into dust and allowing the dust to blow away. These defilements, we could say, are greed, anger, delusion. 
the path factors themselves, we can talk about more broadly. Say, we can take the path and look at sila, which is conduct or virtue. We can look at samadhi as meditation. And we can look at panya as either wisdom or discernment. And so we can look at greed, anger, and delusion on one hand, and see sila, samadhi, and panya on the other. And we can really consolidate the path down to what the Buddha said. The Buddha said himself that he only taught two things, that he taught stress and the end of stress. So there we have our foundation that we can work on, the distillation of the path down to its most basic. The path itself has three factors, which we can think of a tripod, each leg supporting each other, allowing us to stand. And then the defilements, the things that we're working on uprooting, freeing ourselves from. That's part of that dispassion. That's part of that cessation, that release and relinquishment. At the end of that, we call that freedom, true happiness, true peace. In developing this, this path, we, we look to people that we can trust. We look to people that we can have confidence in as helpers along the path, admirable friends. Some of those are, are real, true, and tried teachers, people of, of elevated status that we give a lot of our respect to. Others can be more like, like big brothers, big sisters on the path, aunts and uncles almost, you know? But they need to be there, these people that we can trust. But that means that in learning to trust people, we need to also still be discerning, pay attention, be truly observant. Because we can have people that not only mean well, but have a big following, are deeply respected, have a lot of admirers, and they can try to tell you what the real world is all about. But in the same way that we practice this path to break up the defilements, they too are doing that. But the tricky part about the defilements is that they can take our best efforts and best intentions and warp them, twist them. When we talk about delusion, that's precisely the issue. It's not that we're deluded and then we find the Dhamma, we find the Dharma. It's that even as we practice the Dharma, even as we're surrounded by admirable friends, we can still have the problem of deluding ourselves, not only in terms of our progress, but in terms of what we think the path even is, what's truly helpful, what really is for our long-term welfare and happiness. And so you have someone like this scholar, someone truly respected. And this is someone who means well. This is someone who, who wants to, to make a, a real change in the world, to help others. This is not someone who has ill intent. But what this person is encouraging is something that within ourselves couldn't be anything other than ill intent. We can't possibly compassionately take a life. There's an aspect of ill will involved. There's an aspect of wanting someone to puff out of existence. That was something that the Buddha reminded not only his monks, but the lay people as well. We can mean well, we can be compassionate, 
and end up encouraging someone down the inappropriate path, something that that only seems to really soothe our concerns without making a, a true change. There's an example of this in the Pali Canon, where there was a, a compassionate monk who happened upon um, an executioner, someone whose job it was to to end lives. And it was seen as a just thing. In a just society, sometimes people need to be punished, and sometimes the punishment needs to be the, the taking of that person's life. And we see that as just and fair. A lot of cultures do, right? And this monk, out of great compassion, goes to the ex executioner and says, you know, just make sure that when you're killing these people, you know, you don't draw it out. You don't let them suffer. You, you make it as quick as possible. Just a real clean cut, and you just you just end it right there. And the monk walked away as if, you know, really thinking he had made a difference, patting himself on the back like he had done the good job of, of a monk to, to encourage this person to kill compassionately. And then this monk goes to the Buddha, and the Buddha finds out what this monk had, had said. And this monk ended up being expelled from the monastic order because of what he had done. Because even in his well-meaning, he had encouraged another person to take a life. And I can't help but think that here is this scholar who is very well known doing something very similar, even with compassionate reasons. And it's not only that. That's a strong example, the taking of life. But you tend to find, at least I tend to find, and perhaps you do too, as we look at, at, at the world with all the people trying to tell us how to be and what to do and how to live, we're bombarded with messages we might say that we're bombarded with a lot of people encouraging us to wrong view, wrong resolves, warping our perceptions. And we know this. We, as a culture in the West, we talk about how we're brainwashed all the time. You know, we think it's something that, that happens on TV, it happens in movies, it happens when we read the news, it happens when we go on social media. We're going to be warped by Facebook, Twitter, and all that. And the thing is, that's true. But the problem is, is that once we do come to something that is meant to right the ship, to point us in, in, into skillfulness, we stop looking to see where we're being guided to. We just assume that everyone who means well in a certain realm means well. And everything that they point us to is really for our long-term welfare and happiness. So it's important to be discerning when we look at the impact is inside us when we receive these teachings from others. You know, when we're looking for someone to trust, we have to look at their not only their words, but their actions and the results of that to see how they're benefiting from the path. And then when we hear their words and we apply them or even entertain them as, as ideas, as concepts, as provisional beliefs, to see what impact they have. So taking a look again at the Eightfold Path in terms of its three factors, we can see what impact Sila has on our lives. We're taught by the Buddha and his disciples that our actions matter, that what we do in the world has an impact not only on others, but on ourselves, within our own minds, within our own hearts. And that's why it matters what we do. Because when we look at Kamma, we're looking at cause and effect. 
the good and bad things we do, the skillful and unskillful things we do, have an impact. And the Buddha is guiding us to live in such a way that we are blameless and harmless. In other words, that we do things that are of real, lasting benefit. So when we take something up like sila, usually for most of us, that's the five precepts. They're not the kind of thing that are just handed down to us from above. as some kind of rules or, or commandments or some aspect of, of religion or some aspect of, of like something antiquated or culturally derived. Because a lot of people sometimes think that, especially in the West, but not just the West. All over the world, there are people that find the precepts and rub up against them. It causes some irritation. A lot of people think that they're the trappings, these precepts, of religion. And once again, they're in the real world. So sure, we understand a lot of the time killing's bad. We won't do that. But when we talk, that tends to slip right past us. We don't try to be skillful in our speech, a lot of us. We don't pay attention to whether or not we're being truthful or kind, non-divisive. A lot of us don't see the point in, in silence and how helpful silence can be to the seclusion and tranquility in the mind. So we just idly chat to fill up silence, to fill the void. Look how uncomfortable we get with silence. Really, really observe if you're in a, in a group of people and you consider them friends or poof, sometimes even more troubling, people you really want to respect you, people you really want to have admire you, people you want to impress. And see if you can do that being silent. You'll notice the mind's desire to want to reach out and fill that silence. Because how could you possibly make an impact on others with silence? And the truth is, silence is quite powerful. So the precepts and conduct, they matter quite a lot because of the impact they can have on us on the inside. That's something that, that often gets, gets overlooked. We, we often think of precepts as something that we do to protect others, and that's true. And that's actually a valid and powerful aspect of the precepts. Because when we talk about these people that we want to look towards, as admirable friends, noble friends. They're people who we can trust because they're safe to be around. And when we follow precepts, we also participate in a measure of that very safety. But that safety also includes the inside. When we practice sila, not just because we think that there are important rules but because we recognize that they train our actions, we can see how training the actions trains the mind. One of my teachers puts it this way, you know, he says, if you can't silence the mouth, how are you going to silence the mind? If you can't control the mouth, how are you going to control the mind? And it's the same thing of, of bodily action as well. If you can't even be skillful in the way you talk to others, and the way you act with others, how are you going to act on the inside? And we can see then how precepts of sila form the foundation of the other aspects of the path. Samadhi being one of them, 
Now, when we look at samadhi as a path factor, we can see that in the Eightfold Path, the, the final factor is samadhi itself, sama samadhi. And when the Buddha talks about samadhi, he talks about meditation. He calls it jhana. When we talk about jhana in, in Sanskrit, it's dhyana, and that's just the word that when the West we translate as meditation. So when we're talking about concentration, we're talking about jhana, which means we're talking about meditation, which also has effort and mindfulness involved. In fact, the fourth part, because there's four steps to jhana that's found in the Pali Canon, we see the um, purification of, of equanimity and mindfulness, right? The perfection of, of those path factors. We can see that the training we do in our day-to-day -day lives, which involves mindfulness, because we do need mindfulness to follow the 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 sila, the, the our conduct. We do need mindfulness there. That mindfulness becomes the impetus into our meditation as well. It helps gear us in that direction. We find ourselves able to seclude our minds from the dangers of the world and the dangers of ourselves. When we talk about these defilements of greed, aversion, and delusion, we're talking about what's going on in here. And oftentimes when we talk about meditation, the very world we have in mind is exactly what's going on in here. The body and mind are the world that we, that we consider as we meditate. And it's that world that we want to protect. It's that world we want to keep safe. And it's that world that if we protect and cultivate and train, ends up giving rise to not only discernment, but real knowledge, real wisdom. And we can see how that has an impact in not only ourselves, but others. If our real concern about the real world is whether or not we're actually helping others or being a hindrance to others, then we have to keep these path factors in mind. Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. To return to that article, the reason why this scholar was, was writing about this whole issue in the first place was because he saw that in, in the world there are unjust people, unjust places, unjust governments that do cruel things to others. And he wanted to propose a means for people, Buddhists, to encourage warfare as a way of combating those types of people. Warfare that ends up leading to conflict, combat, and death. And I can only think that, that this person proposed such an idea because in their minds they view the path as, as this separate thing from real life. You practice the path and it's all for you. You know, you're the one sitting down and meditating. You're the one thinking about these precepts and looking at your conduct, looking at your actions. And you're the one trying to give rise to uh, exalted states of, of knowledge and vision. So how does that help anyone else? Someone like this might say. And so this kind of person will say, well, there's someone who's practicing the path for Nibbana, practicing the path for liberation and release, but then there's maybe other people who, yeah, you know, they're Buddhists, but they're not looking to, to do that. You know, they just, they just want to be good people. And good people sometimes have to do bad things. And I can't help but see that 
as wrong view. Because good people don't do bad things. Now, if we've done bad things in the past, that just makes us human. But if we're practicing this path, we're aspiring to greater than that. And it can be very damaging when we allow people to diminish those aspirations and to tell us that those aspirations are not a part of the real world. When I look at the Pali Canon, when I look at people like the Buddha and his disciples, I see people that are extremely real because they're dealing with the real issues of life. The Buddha as a, as a man was someone born into the same world that we're born into, with the same problems. We tend to think that because we live in a different time, that the circumstances are that much drastically different. And the fact of the matter is, the world is very much the same. We have different distractions, but we're still distracted. We have different sources of, of greed, but we're still greedy. We have different sources of anger. Look at social media. It's just an anger factory. But it's still anger. And we have different sources of delusion. But it's still delusion. And the Buddha provided us a path to uproot those unwholesome qualities, those defilements. And so throughout time, there have been views and resolves and speech and actions and livelihood and effort, mindfulness, concentration. But for those of us practicing this path, we're trying to make them sama. We're trying to make them right and good and true, exalted, noble. We're trying to follow in the path of the noble ones, to do what they would applaud us doing which requires not only effort, but sacrifice. And it requires living in ways that people in the, quote, real world might judge us for, think that we're lesser for, think that we're wrong for. And it might mean that we do things that are not popular in the current zeitgeist, the current climate, the current culture. But that's what it means when we say that following this path is going against the stream. You know, a lot of people these days, they hear against the stream, they think it's all like rebellion and punk rock and stuff, and fine, whatever. But really, when we talk about going against the stream, it's we're going against the way any culture across the world and across all the realms of existence, from all the heaven realms to the hell realms, going against those very ways of being. Because living that way continues our existence in samsara. It continues our existence defiled. And if we seek release, if we seek real freedom, we have to do the things that work. And in my experience so far in this life, the Eightfold Path provides that. It provides something that works. Not only because I see the changes in myself, but because the people I have chosen to trust as guides, I can see how it has worked on them. And when I read something like the Pali Canon, when I look for what they're showing me in there, 
examples like the Buddha and his disciples within his lifetime. I see people who were struggling, where it wasn't easy, and they persevered, and they tasted something, and that something was liberation. And we can see that all through time, if we really look, if we're really observant, we can see people who have released their mind. They have found that freedom, that peace, attainable now, right here in the real world. So the Dhamma that we have this past 2,600 years is for the real world, this place we live in now, with all of its challenges, with all its temptations, with all its confusions, with all its debates, it exists right here. For those of us who are not only willing to see, but willing to practice. So, I'll end my talk there. I hope that's useful. Thank you.